back to the Nuts and Bolts podcast. Today's guest has got 43 years in the hobby, started 3D hobby shops, also is the co-owner of Extreme Flight, designer of everything under the sun, and chances are you have flown one of his designs. Coming from Extreme Flight Skunk Works, Ben Fisher. Welcome, sir. Good to have you on. Uh, good to be here. Uh, if the rattling from the ice cubes in my drink is too loud, let me know. Nah, here we are. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> I, I just think you need to mix me one and send it this way. There you go. There you go. Hey, uh, what's the drink of choice there? Oh, it's a screwdriver, which is it's my, my podcasting go-to. Nice. Yeah, nice. Somehow Mine a little is, uh, alcohol just kind of smooths everything out a little bit, makes it go a little easier. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, when you're talking to thousands of people you never met, it's, it's, it's great. It's hundreds, but thanks, Ben. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I believe in you guys. It's aspirational. You can do I it. I like it. I like it. Well, you know how they get theirs little by little, and we just keep building. You know, we'll get to thousands eventually. Did you just quote it's that Disney overnight movie? success that takes ten years? Right, <laughs> right. Well, no, uh, we had a little pregame here, so kind of uh we've already got a little a little bit into it and uh but uh ben once you uh start us off tell us kind of how you got into the hobby and uh synopsis of what you've done in the hobby yeah so this is a good time to tell that story because i over last weekend i actually went and uh, my uncle is the person who taught me to fly and uh i've I've been trying to get him for a long time to let me go up in his attic because I kind of figured that a certain plane was up there. And he finally said, yeah, well, I got to go up in the attic. And I actually found and brought down and took pictures of the first plane that I ever held the controls on, um, which was, a you know, when you're a little kid, you think, oh, it had a 10 foot wingspan. No, it was a little, you know, 50 inch wingspan, high wing plane. But I actually held the plane that I first flew 43 years ago. That was really cool. And, um, yeah, I had an uncle that was deep into RC and, and his dad was a great, uh, scratch designer and scratch builder. And whenever we would go visit that part of the family, I would just immediately run out to the airplane shop and spend all my time out there. Cause I loved it so much. And, uh, anyway, so yeah, it was very much a, very much a family deal. And, um, I, uh, I've been, I've been flying RC for most of 43 years. I'm 51 now. And, uh, my first radio was a big square sheet metal gold craft radio. That's how far I go back. And uh, I flew U control before that. I had Fox. You can try. I had a I had a box of Coxo 49s, right? So I'm from I'm from that era. And uh, and <laughs> so then I'm uh, from the era where we're converting the the uh, crafts to 2.4. So. <laughs> oh, that, that is very cool. See, I would love to have a craft converted to 2.4. Um, uh, although I have a jetty, which, you know, feels a lot the same. So, Well, I've got three crafts I'm looking at here, and that's the intent with, for all of those. Dude, so, is, is one of them a gold line? Uh, let me look. Hang on. I have to take my headphones off. Hang on. Let's say I've got a gold Futaba sitting here that I plan to do the same thing with at some point oh if somebody's going to convert a craft gold line to 2.4 we may have to talk <laughs> i've been i've been uh, hitting the nostalgia really hard lately i've been going around swap meets and buying kits for all the airplanes i have when i was a kid <laughs> oh it's, it's terrible it's terrible i uh, I, I went 
I went to an event a couple of months ago and I actually found a little Satan. You know what a little Satan is? No. And it's a it's it's just one of the classic you control combat kits anyway. Okay. And so I this is my prized possession. I mean, you know, I have all these 35% airplanes, everything out in the shop, but the thing that's like sitting on top is this little Satan kit that cost me 10 bucks. <laughs> Oh, uh, anyway anyway so, so yeah that that's that's how old i am that's how far back i go in this and then um in uh 2004 um founded uh 3d hobby shop um not with a whole lot of direction i loved the hobby so much and i had an opportunity i had some time i was able to do it but then uh um I was uh, one of the things that happened as a result of starting 3D Hobby Shop, which at the beginning was just a local hobby store. It was a local brick and mortar hobby shop. But I started dealing. I started uh, I started as a dealer for uh, a couple of different ARF companies. And one of the companies was Extreme Flight and got to know Chris Henson. And, and then before too long, I was actually uh, became a supplier. I was making some little parts to go in some of the Extreme Flight kits, things like that. And then eventually started uh, doing ARF aircraft, mass-produced ARF aircraft, and got to work with some some great designers and some great people, and had some good times and some bad times. And uh, but you know the company people seemed to like what we were doing and got to grow. And then eventually in uh, 2015 had the opportunity to come full circle and had the opportunity to merge 3D Hobby Shop with Extreme Flight. And uh, uh, Chris Henson and I actually cooked this deal up at uh, at Joan All. And um, which is where I think most business in this part of the industry gets done is late at night when everybody's, you know, pretty toasty. Right. <laughs> right. And um, anyway, we cooked up this idea. And, you know, I can I can remember very, very clearly when a, a slightly toasty Chris Hansen said, we should just do a merger. And I thought, well, yeah, <laughs> I was in the right state of mind that it sounded completely reasonable. And uh, by the time Joe Nall rolled around next year, we had gotten the, the deal done and merged the companies. And I am so happy that's how it worked out i love 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 working at extreme flight it is it is great it's fantastic and um, i've got really good business partners the hensons are just the the best i mean everybody knows chris and melissa are the best and i love working for them and and so i spend most of my days here in the skunk works in the lab and uh you know mostly drawing and cutting stuff so that's what i do nice awesome. So I had to pull these down there, Ben, and uh, one of them is a Mark III single stick. I have a Mark III two stick and a Series 72 craft. So That is very cool. Let me figure out what I had. I had, I'm going to find it right here. But uh, yeah, I actually just saw a post today uh, where a guy converted one of these over to FR Sky using the XHT module mm -hmm. and uh, Casey and I have actually done two conversions using that same module on Fataba gold case radios and a Fataba attack four. So simple little module solder in three wires and you got a 2.4 radio. Oh, that's awesome. So what I have, I'm not sure which box it's in, but what I have is the craft gold box sports series um from from sometime in the late 70s and uh oh my gosh i would absolutely love to have that thing converted 2.4 that would be great we'll, we'll we'll talk more about this oh yeah hey is your video on ben it probably looks like this one bro 
This is serial number five. Yes. Dude, yeah. that is that's the yes, that's the one I have. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. just that was some powerful nostalgia right there. Oh, that's All that's right. awesome. Let's see. Well, Clay, uh, we got we got the one he needs, so we know what we need to make happen. Right. Oh, now I now I can see everybody. Yeah. This one's the this is the one I enjoy, the chrome gimbals. I think it's awesome. Um and then just uh so Ben, you and I talked about uh some stuff the other day with the uh uh, amputees or the guys with uh, disabilities that uh, you were working on some some projects with that, and I don't know if we want to deep dive into it, but I've actually well, got yeah, the single just, stick. Oh, with yeah, that in mind. see that would be that would be perfect for guys that have have more mobility on one side than the other. Yeah, and yeah, that that there, there's some applications we need to we need to bring that back. I agree with that. Yeah, that's that's a project I'm I'm really really interested in enjoying a lot. We we can talk about that at some point later. Um, yeah. So um, yeah. Well, what sh- what should we talk about? Uh, well, we kind of give a synopsis of your uh, and I, actually I had a question about that. Uh, what airplane was your first airplane? Yeah. So since I I got to go and hold it and look inside it and mess around with it for the first time, I hadn't seen that thing. Uh, probably in 40 years and it had gotten fuzzy in my memory, but it, it's really cool. It was a scratch built. So that was a plane that my uncle designed and he and his dad built in their shop. And um, it's just a little high wing. It was a, uh, uh, just a neat little, little high wing trainer that they built to teach all of us kids to fly. And, uh, but nice. man, I, I think it's so cool that the first plane I ever flew was a scratch built because, you know, I like aerobatics. I like racing. I like, I like ripping a box open and putting an arf together and I like all those things, but I have like a deep, you know, diagnosable passion for scratch building. So, you know, I'm, uh, I'm really, that really made me happy because until I, we started talking about it again, I honestly couldn't remember what it was. And I thought it might've been uh, a mass, you know, some, some, some mass produced kit, but nope. The first plane I ever flew was a balsa scratch built. That makes me happy. That's awesome. awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. With a with a K and B forty, yes. So you know that's that was that was a good solid way to start. Nice. Well, the only scratch builder out of this bunch is Jason Hill, and uh, he's done a fair amount of scratch building, and he's got a really amazing project that uh, I think you would find pretty fascinating yourself, Ben. And uh, <laughs> slowly but surely, it's going to be finished and and brought out. And you want to kind of tell him about that, Jason? man uh i yeah so i've i've built a well i built a b52 years ago that was an 86 inch wingspan from foam core or blue foam insulation not the sheets but the it was actually i think about three to four inches thick and a hot wire cut it and it had uh, ducted fans retractable landing gear and a working bombay and it flew great um they just Nice, nice looking airplane. It flew very well. And uh, we, we lost it trying to hand launch it, which we'd done successfully one time before, but uh, we, we had a mishap. And uh, I decided to build a bigger one. So now I'm building a 174-inch wingspan. Ooh, B-52. now you're talking. <laughs> What's and the then, construction material for that one? Uh, I've moved to one-pound expanded polystyrene EPS. Mm-hmm. And what's your, what's your skin material? 
It's actually going to be sheeted with balsa and then fiberglass. The balsa I'm using is, uh, it's relatively thin. I forget exactly. Um, we got a pile of it over in the corner of the shop. It's uh, uh, the wing one thirty second or something, isn't it? Yeah, it's something like that. I, like I forget. The the wings are sheeted already. The fuselage is sitting here in front of me right now. Um, with the it's the fuselage is complete. I three D printed the nose. Uh, the only thing I have left to add to the fuselage is the vertical stabilizer, and then I'll be sheeting the fuselage. Did you uh, did you cheat the vertical stab? Did you make it bigger than scale? Not. I have not yet. So that's, that's the one thing I haven't built yet is the vertical. And I was actually, yeah, so you, since, since you're, thing. since you're a B 52 fan, what is it? What do you guys call them? Buffs? Yeah. I call it a yeah. buff. Yeah. yeah. And then, then in all the, on all the web properties, they sanitize it and they call it a big, ugly fat fellow. Correct. Anyway, since, since, since you're a buff guy, it seems to me, you know, cause there's, there's a lot of, lot of good and some bad videos of, of buff models and full scales all over the web. And then they have that particular behavior where if you uh, violate that critical bank angle, right. Um, it just augers in. Do you, do you know why they do that? So uh, the main reason is just that the, the current model does not use spoilers and even the spoilers or excuse me, does not use ailerons. And even the ailerons on the previous models were not very effective as they were mostly what they would, what Boeing now calls high speed ailerons, mm -hmm. which are small aileron between the flaps. Uh, that was the main reason you, you have no way to create lift on the wing that needs to go up when you give a roll. Got it. Your only input is to decrease lift on the wing going down. That's what spoilers mm -hmm. do. Um, so I believe it was it's like 60 degrees, 55 to 60 degrees is the is a critical point and beyond that it's it's interesting to me because i so i worked on b-52s for six years um active duty and then another five years as a civilian and i've actually sat in the cockpit of a b-52 and read parts of the flight manual the a role beyond the critical point is not a condemned maneuver in the aircraft but the flight manual tells you that it will take several thousand feet to recover from a role beyond that point. Um, and I, I mean, it's just, it's just a fact of flying the aircraft, but yeah. Yeah. And there's some, there's some absolutely brutal and tragic videos you can watch of what happens when you violate that critical bank angle at low altitude. Absolutely. Uh, and then, my model, uh, and then, yeah, go ahead. Well, my model has spoilers, but I'm also incorporating ailerons for that reason. I like the positive control of ailerons. And I, I plan to have the ailerons um, set up where I can use them or disable them if I don't need them, depending on the flight reg regime I'm in. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it appears that quite a few of the uh, of the really giant scale turbine powered models of that have the same behavior because there's a couple of a couple of videos <laughs> I've seen uh, that look they look way too scale the way that they uh, they go in after they. Uh, exceed that critical bang angle. So those guys did a great job of, of recreating scale behavior, but oof. Right. Uh, yeah, so, absolutely. well, that, that is really cool. I love when people build stuff out of blue core because uh, for, uh, for tw 20, uh, for, for a long time, I've kept my same handle on uh, RC groups, which I don't go there much anymore. Uh, but uh, I was always blue core basher on there. 
And um, <laughs> that, because, uh, you know, that's that, when I first got into electric flight, which, you know, I go the very late 90s and, and uh, right around the turn of the millennium, I was just, that's what I was doing is I was cutting airplanes out of fan fold foam and stuff like that. And so I got on RC groups to, to talk to other people that were wasting time cutting stuff out of blue core foam. <laughs> and then I just, I just kept that, uh, I kept that, that handle. I mean, you know, like I could, when, when I got into the business, I could have changed it to 3D hobby shop or something along the way, but that handle just pissed people off. It was so great <laughs> because, you know, it was, it, they, they would always just, assume, it's, it's the internet. So everyone assumes the worst. That's the rules, right? So yep. people would always just assume the, the worst. If somebody that had a handle that said blue core basher, they would just assume the worst. Like, you know, he was a retarded monkey or something. I'm like, well, this is fun. I'm going to keep it. So I always kept the thing. And then it was so much fun having that cheeky thing that um, on Flying Giants, I, 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 uh, I think my, my handle on Flying Giants has always been 3D Hobby Shop. By that point, I was being a little more practical and business minded. Right. But, um, but, you know, I, I had to have a little fun. So I found this great photo for, a, uh, for an avatar. It's a dude. He's up in the glass nose of a B-25 and he's dropped trowel and he's mooning everybody from the glass nose of a Mitchell. And so that's always been my, my profile picture on FG. And that just pisses off all the exactly right people. So I've kept it for all those years too. Oh, that's perfect. Uh, he's, that been trolling, awesome. he's been trolling people for nearly 20 years. <laughs> it's even better. Oh. Yeah. This well, you know, our kind of guy. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, when I, I, I think I've got, I think I've got, I don't know, 25, which is, I'm not proud of this. I'm, I'm not the kind of guy that would, be proud of this i'm actually ashamed of it but i've got 25 or something thousand posts on rc groups and several thousands on flying giants and, and when you've had that many interactions with people on the internet you know you you learn the rules right you you learn how things are going to go and you've had some misadventures and so you're like oh okay i recognize this and and you just start to you start to, to see everything as patterns, right? You know, and then eventually you get that wall in your house that you've got all the string and the, the thumbtacks and it's making all the patterns. And, you know, you've, anyway, <laughs> you've got those, you've got those rooms in your house, right? But anyway, it's, it's, it's been, yeah, it's been a long, long two decades of, of talking to people about RC airplanes on the internet. And I, I kind of think I maybe I haven't seen it all, but I think I've seen most of it. And, uh, you know, it is, it is a really interesting thing to watch when somebody just self-destructs on the internet in front of thousands of strangers. That's, <laughs> that is, that is fascinating. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really something, but, um, anyway, uh, we, and, but it's, it's, it's easy to be philosophical about it now because, you know, 99, literally. 99.9% of people that you interact with that fly model airplanes are great because they fly model airplanes. Right. And they, they obviously are a fairly happy person and they probably are pretty well adjusted and everything, or they wouldn't want to fly model airplanes. They would want to, you know, do Coke. So instead of spending their money <laughs> doing Coke, they spend their money on, and I mean, some guys do a little of both, you know, whatever different strokes, but if they're spending their money on model airplanes, they're probably somebody I can get along with. So 99.99% of people you deal with on the internet about model airplanes are great. And then that one guy out of a thousand, who's just insane. And you can see him coming a mile away. And 
when you're when you when you're first, when you're new, you know, when you oh, I've just started a company and I put all my hopes and dreams into it, and oh my gosh, it has to it has to succeed. And when you see that guy, he's just like that's like the worst day ever when you have to interact with that guy. But after 20 years, you know, the guy says, I'm going to ruin you. I'm going to tell everybody not to buy you. You're like, okay, yeah. <laughs> go, go ahead. People have been saying that about once a year for 20 years, and it never appeared to make any difference because, buddy, if you're that crazy, nobody's listening to you. Right. right. Yep. <laughs> so Ugh. the other day when we were doing our sound check, you mentioned, you know, looking at if Jason Donhawk will posted something, you always paid attention. Well, Cody Wojcik is that guy for me. Because he doesn't post much, but when he does, it's usually going to be pretty funny. And yeah. he trolls the shit out of people, and I oh, laugh yeah. hysterically every time. Oh, it, it is it is great. There there are people that if they post, there's a couple of things you know for sure. First of all, they're going to be right. And Cody and Jason, you know, along with you know, I mean, for for me, there's some Hall of Fame guys that if they don't when when they post everyone should stop and, and listen to what they're saying guys like terry wiles bob sawyer you know great builders and pilots like that and uh, cody you know jason um you know but it's really it's really funny when they manage to suck somebody into the troll and they don't know who they're talking to and they just continue you know to just oh, pile yeah. shit on themselves <laughs> oh my gosh it's and a meanwhile you're sitting back knowing these guys and just laughing to yourself <laughs> like these guys have no clue. <laughs> well, it's great. You got somebody he's who's just disagreeing vehemently and saying, tell, telling, telling a guy who's flown in, you know, how many TOCs that he's wrong about some, you know, something with setup. You're like, oh, this is so this is so great. Let me just screenshot all of this so I can laugh about it again later. And, and, you know. Before he figures it and, out and deletes it all. Yep. <laughs> well, yeah. And then there's that moment of realization. You can you can pinpoint to the moment when somebody took pity on the poor soul and PM'd him and said, look, man, yeah. you need to stop this. You're talking to a guy that plays second and two. Anyway, so yeah. Which is an act of mercy that you can do for someone who's making an ass of themselves. But uh, yeah, the the internet is is fun and, and crazy, and and I, I I actually I really enjoy it, and you know, the vast majority of interactions are really positive, and I have I have a great time with it, and um, you know, Chris and I talk about this all the time because both of us have you know over the course of twenty years, you know, Chris, Chris we have, we're having the twentieth anniversary of Extreme Flight this year. That's what this is. It was Extreme Flight was founded in 02. and um, so we did our. 20th anniversary fly-in. I don't know if you guys saw any of that stuff from Georgia. We did that back in, in at the end of March. Yeah, we were and, um, so we're having, we were there. Yeah. Oh, it was yeah, <laughs> it was a quality good time. That that was fun. It was it we got to we ran the fly-in just the way we wanted to, which meant that there were no contests, there were very few rules, everything was totally laid back. We just got to fly and have fun. It was our perfect fly-in. And uh, Chris and I both like events like that very much where stuff is very low-key. And um, anyway, so, you know, over the course of 20 years, uh, you learn you learn skills, right, for interacting with people, even people that are jumping up and down, bad, angry, confused, whatever it is. And you, you learn how to deal with it so you can make, you know, for, virtually everybody happy. Right. And that's that's the goal is, you know, even if even if an interaction starts out, maybe somebody's really frustrated you know, or something gone wrong. But if by the end of the interaction they're they're happy and you know they they understand you know hey this is a good guy he's not a crook he's trying to help me out well then it's it's positive and that's that's what we're always going for absolutely yeah yeah i actually look forward i noticed it seems to me like you you've started posting a little bit more here and there um 
just helping people out, answering questions, providing feedback and so on. And not in a defensive manner, whenever someone has an issue, it's just, you know, simply, Hey, this is how it is. And this is why it's that way. And, and then the other one I, I like when you post about some of the projects you're working on and uh, kind of bring us back towards the scratch building, the uh, ultimate. And uh, I believe it was in the RC biplanes group that I'm in as well. And I think that's where I first saw it at. But uh, when you started making the, the posts about that ultimate and talking about designing it and building it just because you wanted it, you know, that was awesome to me. I was like, Hey, that's, I like that. You know, not only are you designing stuff for extreme flight, but just things that you're interested in genuinely. Right. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's a whole lot easier to be motivated to do a really good job on a project. Obviously if you have some emotional connection to it, I mean, it's, you know, I, I, there's certain airplanes that I just love, 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 can't get enough of. And so, you know, I'm always, you know, needling Chris and saying, Hey man, we need to do a, you know, a 1917 pumpernickel pickerel or whatever, you know, because I want to build one. And, you know, he's like, no, nah, man, <laughs> but, um, we can agree on a lot of, uh, aerobatic aircraft. We both, we both like ultimate. So that was a good, you know, natural choice. And, uh, um, that was, I, I don't know if you, if you remember the whole article, but, um, that, uh, that plane, I did it, uh, while the whole state of Texas was shut down. I'm, I'm in Texas, east of BFW. I'm out here in the, what we call the, the piney woods of East Texas. And, um, we had, you know, we never get snow. We never even get really cold weather. And then, you know, a year and a half ago, we had snowpocalypse and shut the whole state down for, you know, over a month. And, uh, but that's what I did during snowpocalypse was I, I drew and built, built the first of, of the, uh, prototype of that ultimate um and uh, that was much better than just sitting around freezing my ass off so um i have my little propane heater out in the shop keeping i have to keep you know the lasers have glass tubes with water in them so you got to keep your shop somewhat warm and uh anyway so i was out here uh keeping my hands warm over a hot laser and uh, cutting pieces of of an ultimate and that was that was really is a good a good project and it worked out really well because Man, I, I love ultimates. You probably tell them a biplane nut. Um, I love them. And um, I always, I, I had, uh, I've had most of the ultimates to Dave Patrick, and I've had the, the AeroWorks ultimates and, um, you know, all, all really fun. And so I always wanted to do my own. So yeah, this is, this has been, been really neat. And now I'm waiting on pins and needles because it shouldn't be too long now. And I'll be flying a, uh, a factory built version of it. And we'll okay. see how that goes. And, and it's really neat because obviously ultimates are coming back. I mean, this is a, this is a fun thing. I think we can say it officially now. Ultimates are coming back, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely. you know, Kike is doing a nice one. You know, we're going to get one going and that's, that's good. Cause you got to have competition, right. To improve the breed. And um, so I'm, I am excited that ultimates are back because we, you know, we, we kind of ran out of them for a while. Yeah. And it's no secret that I'm a flex innovations fan and uh, you're what? And- Oh yeah. (laughs) It's no secret for sure. Uh, the thing that I want to, the takeaway for me and what I found awesome. And I I think it's great that it went this way was, uh, the flex design is a a more traditional styled ultimate, which is an amazing airplane. It's a beautiful airplane. And at the same time, your version seemed to be more of a, an ultimate in G in my mind. With the yeah, redesigned exactly, cowling. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, man, that's awesome that 
they're the same airplane, but they're not the same airplane. And so yes. it, yeah. I like that. Well, it would be really boring if everybody just made the same airplane. And, you know, some sometimes the industry gets perilously close to that. I mean, you know, it's you can you can look back over the last 10 years and you can see that there have been some trends that several different designers have hopped on board a particular trend. And for then you got, you know, this airplane and from this company and this one from a totally different company look a lot the same. And then they get away from it. I, I like it when there's a choice. Most people do. Um, and, you know, it, there, what's what I'm what it actually, it actually makes me happy when somebody um, gets on the Internet and has a good old rip roaring debate about something that I designed or that Extreme Flight produces and, and say, well, what do I get that or do I get this competing airplane? And if everybody gets in there and everybody has an opinion and it's a it's a good, solid debate. I sit back and I smile because that means that that part of the industry is healthy. It means that people are noticing what we're doing and, you know, whether it comes up that 59 people out of a hundred liked ours, or if only 43 people out of a hundred, like ours, that's still really good news, you know, right. that, that people Absolutely. care enough, that people care enough to argue about it. And that there's, you know, I, I, people oftentimes like at events, they'll, start talking to me and i i like to talk about the business aspects of the industry i'm always really intrigued by the industry and what goes on in the industry and somebody will say well man how do you feel about it? and they'll name one of our competitors right they'll say how do you feel about xyz airplane company do you hate those guys and i'm saying oh gosh no i hope that they you know i hope that their business does well because the absolute worst thing that could happen um to ferrari is for Porsche to go out of business because then there's not a sector. Then there's nothing people to argue about. You, you, you have to have there. There has to be news. There has to be competition. There has to be activity. And you want to you want to beat the other guy. I mean, you want to kick his ass and you want to make sure that you've got the better design. And But at the same time, you don't want him to go away because then then that's there goes all the fun. Right. Well, and one of the things I've seen is you, you know, because you're in the inner workings of this but that competition has bred innovation and aircraft design has evolved as a result of this competition. It has evolved fast. Um, yeah. You, you and I were talking about that the other day that, um, and you made some very good benchmark points about um, when, when aircraft uh, became uh, reliable at doing the, the current suite of XA maneuvers. And, and I thought you had some pretty good dates that you nailed down there. And you said, certainly um, 10 years ago, um, it was difficult to find aircraft that would live uh, in the, uh, the, the, current, the current XA flying regime. And the, the last 10 years has been an ext extreme amount of, uh, of technical development in the aerobatic ARF part of the market. Um, the aer aerobatic ARFs have jumped way ahead um, of a lot of other sectors in the market. I mean, I, I, I fly a lot of different kinds of aircraft. I don't post about them or talk about them, but I, I fly a lot of different kinds of stuff. I help people with different stuff. I assemble different things for people. And aerobatic ARFs have jumped so far out ahead of a lot of other categories of aircraft. The only categories of aircraft that are you know, they, that really stay, they're, they're, they're being pushed forward. Composite turbines are enjoying this kind of rapid development, right? Because there's a lot of new designs. Um, they're technically on a very high level. And then, of course, 
sailplanes are always that's those guys are are you know those are freaky freaky geniuses and they're always doing very interesting things but um aerobatic arfs had to it was a matter of survival um when uh, when xa maneuvers started to be in, invented uh, more than a decade ago a lot of airplanes got broken right oh yeah and yeah. and i mean how how many broken wing panels you know have have you seen and then how long has it been since you've seen a broken wing panel on a good quality arf from one of the leading companies that was you know that's a really uh, obvious um, example of technical development so and personally um, i've not seen an airplane break that wasn't a result of a crash if it broke in the air it was usually a faulty repair as a result of a crash and yeah yeah and those are been my personal experience over the last few years yeah it's it it, um, overload conditions um, are pretty hard to achieve in the air now and most airplanes from reputable companies will put up with thousands and thousands of extremely harsh cycles and um certainly your your classic your basic and classic aero loads the kind of stuff that used to used to break spars used to break tubes you know things like that um that's what the industry had to come to terms with now the next thing that the industry has to come to terms with is um servo development is proceeding so quickly that um now now then the next thing is that you've got um airplanes that uh, have you know almost a thousand you know, uh, ounce inches on a, on a surface. And, um, that'll be the next, the next big leap forward in the industry is going to be, you know, coming to terms with the fact that that servo development is happening so, so rapidly. And, um, but I love it all. This is, this is, this is what I do, you know, seven days a week. And this is my absolute favorite thing because I, I love the idea of optimizing. I, I absolutely love this. This is, this is what gets me off is, um, changing things <laughs> on, on model airplanes. Now this is maybe a road that you don't want to go down, but as far as servos go, I wonder sometimes if some of the numbers aren't inflated. Oh, of course they are. And it's like C ratings. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not like there's a, a battery C rating police that goes around, you know, there's not an FDA for battery C ratings and there's not any sort of an entity that, you know, polices the claims. What was the old deal that they, that the guys in the shop would tell us young bucks when we first started where he said, multiply all salesmen's claims by 0.4. That was what, <laughs> that's what the old guys multiply all salesmen's claims, salesmen's claims by 0.4. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of those numbers are a little bit, a little bit inflated, which, you know, I mean, how long has it been since uh, a guy got a new car and took it to a chassis dyno and it, it actually ran, you know, the perfect number, you know, that doesn't happen very often either, but we can, we can see that the servo industry is moving fast, whether the well, you know, whether the numbers perfectly accurately reflect what they're able to do. I mean, uh, that, that industry is, is moving on. There's a lot of competitors, more competitors are jumping in and we're not seeing the kind of failures that we used to see um, certainly not seeing among the, the better brands of servos, you just don't have thermal failures anymore. Right. Whereas if you go back to like 2009, right. In 2009, when you have guys that are starting to fly XA, it's starting to exist 
and they've got, you know, 59, 55s and stuff in their wings, which was a great servo, you know, for the application back in the day. But we had to start putting three servo bays on 35% airplanes because with two, when they started in trying to invent rifle rollers, they were, uh, you know, burning up with 35% airplane would, would land and you'd have a smoking hole in the wing, right? Because one of the uh, one of the servos burned up, and then we thought, oh my God, what are we going to do? And so we said, well, as a stopgap measure, let's put three servo bays in thirty five percent airplanes. And you know, we did that for a couple of years. And but those thermal problems have largely gone away. You know, through the use of brushless motors and good firmware, et cetera, et cetera. All these all these servos are really pretty badass, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so you know, but but the the thing is, is that it's created a monster now. Instead of just having really good you know, 400 ounce servos. Now they're just going, you know, it's, it's getting so crazy. Um, like I've got what, one of the MKS servos that I just put on my 110 inch muscle bike is 900. Is that what it is? Oh, Thomas is going to kill me that I don't have the right number. It's a shitload. Right. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, it's a shitload of, of power and, um, you know, it's what, something we could never dream of. And, is that the, um, uh, HBL 3850 maybe? Yeah. The one with the slightly larger than standard size case. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah i mean it's it's a it's a gorgeous thing and um um you know it's i i've i've got it on the rudder of this airplane a tremendous overkill because even with the da 200 it's it's you know we don't need 900 ounce inches but um it's 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 a great little machine so that's the next thing is is um now we have to figure out okay we've got these amazing amazing servers how do we make use of that what's the best most efficient way to make use of that so that's what one of the things that we're currently working on which i'm having a hoot uh, absolute hoot working on that well one of the ways you guys have done that is rather than having three servos ganged on a rudder you're dropping it down to one or two and so you're cutting weight and you're cutting overall cost at the end of the day because now you don't have to buy large numbers. You can buy a smaller number of servos. And so to me, that's a great evolution of having more powerful servos. Yeah. And it, you know, the, those, those kinds of, of evolutions, they, they take place in kind of fits and starts, you know, people try something, try a trend and, and like, you know, and you, you also, uh, you also, uh, figure out what you can't do or what you're going to have to upgrade to make something worthwhile. And that's one of the places where having the team pilots, I, you know, one of the, one of the things is I'm an okay pilot. I've been flying for a long time, but um, you know, I, I'm never going to achieve what, you know, the top level guys are doing like the, the guys that we sponsor. And so it's absolutely necessary that we have the, the sponsored pilots just because they can put more hurt on stuff than, than I can. Right. And so uh, that's that's one of the things that that we do is just get those guys to mercilessly beat up on airplanes, just beat 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 on them, and try to make them fail. And and yeah. you know we 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 have to we have to make them fail. We have to try to make them fail. And um, that's why a lot of the stuff you have to have you know one of the top twenty guys in the states to really be able to abuse your airplane to the point where you can get failures out of it because like you know, servos are so good wing spars are so good you've got to have a santiago or an antonio or a jace or somebody to just come in and and load it reliably up into the high teens of g's right so that you can develop these failures because if you don't you know you, you got to load it to the point of failure so that you can get data otherwise so, the airplane flies around you're like oh that's that's cool you haven't learned anything so I had a couple of conversations I wanted to bring up that, that you may not have known that happened. Uh, one of my, actually, I know for sure. Uh, 
it was at Ice House a couple of years ago, the first year that Jace came to Ice House. And I think maybe the first year you had been there. I know you were there that year, but I'm not sure if it was your first. Anyway, um, an older guy come to me and asked me, he said, what do you know about extreme flight? And I said, well, what do you want to know? He said, well, are they any good? I said, well, you've seen him fly, haven't you? And Jace was flying at that moment. I said, well, you've seen him fly, haven't you? He said, yeah. I said, well, then what do you think? And maybe that was a little bit rude of me, but like you can see it right there. Like if it'll handle that, it's going to handle anything you or I can put it through. And uh, to me, I felt like it spoke for itself. You know, you see that, that guy, like you're saying, you see Jace or you see Santi or even Super Tim, some of these guys fly them. Okay. I know it's a great airplane. You know, I'm going to start calling him that. Next time I see Tim, I'm going to say, hey, even Super Tim. Yeah. That's going to be his new handle. Even Super Tim. Even oh, Super. That's what even, I, even I thought the same look, thing. Look, let's, we got to yeah. get this ball rolling. You have just coined this perfect. So his name from now on is Even Super Tim. Okay. Nice. Even Super Tim can fly. Yeah. Tim, Tim is yeah. actually, he's a great pilot. He sandbags a lot. But, you know, if, if yeah. Tim wasn't so busy in his retail business, because Tim, you know, and his family, they worked their ass off at that. Obviously, Tim could be, instead of, instead of covering competitions, Tim could be flying at competitions. Right. Tim's a great, a great pilot. Um, now, the guy that, the one I'm watching intently is uh, Timmy. Uh, well, yeah. I, I think Timmy is, uh, he is set for success already, so. Yeah, t- Timmy. Timmy is gaining the, the piloting skills. He also has a good attitude, and he's also seeing RC from the inside in a way that very few young people get to see. It'll be very interesting to see what he what he does, because um, you know this that that's going to be a that could be. I think it probably will be a very powerful father son team there. So Absolutely. anyway, yeah, I, actually you know, that, one of the most impressive flying routines I've ever seen was at SADFest a couple of years ago. It was Tim and Timmy. And the flight that they did together, it was with a couple of 35%. That was phenomenal. And I told Tim later, I said, you guys should work with that more. I said, because I enjoyed watching that as much as anything. And it was just a simple low and slow routine. One of the things that they done that I thought was absolutely incredible was this leapfrog where they would go from a hover and go up and kind of hammerhead over the other one mm-hmm. and then flip back into a hover and they leapfrogged each other down the flight line doing that. I was like, man, that was incredible. You guys should do that more. And, uh, Tim's, you know, he, he thought he's like, Hey, thanks. You know, I appreciate that. And anyway, I don't know if he developed, you know, worked with Timmy on that anymore or not, but nonetheless, I really enjoy watching those two fly together. Yeah, even I, Clay, I even Clay thought that was cool. <laughs> oh, uh, that leapfrog thing—it was. I've, I've seen video of it before, and that was really cool to watch. I could imagine seeing it in person. Yeah, yeah, it looks really, really impressive. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, that's we're 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 lucky to have uh, to be associated with the Hansteins and, and with Northwest RC. They're they're good people. Oh yeah, yeah definitely. And what, uh, were we, what were we talking about before we started making fun of Tim? <laughs> I, I do I do want to circle I do want to circle back to that somebody make a note I want to circle back and make more fun of Tim later okay perfect <laughs> no yeah, problem noted um, no the other one was uh, a conversation actually you and I had uh, out at uh, Jonal 
And it's an observation that I've had that a lot of companies, when they have a prototype, they really don't want to break it. So they're very cautious, I will say, about, you know, only certain people fly it. Uh, it doesn't really get pushed to its limit because it's the prototype. We don't want to break it. And uh, I don't really get that vibe from you or Chris. And uh, I think I said something to you about that. And you're like, well, I love it when these guys break it because now I get to fix it and I get to find ways to make it better. And I thought that was incredible. Yeah. I, I, I also think it's a little bit, well, I, I totally understand if a plane has been through its development process and now the, the data has been gathered, the changes have been made, it's ready for market. And if there's a shiny clean one, that's got a show schedule to go on. Yeah, I, I get that. On the other hand, in the in the 3D aerobatic part of the market, that doesn't really work because these aircraft, in order to be shown off, they have to be abused heavily. And so if you've got something that's that you're going to show to the public, then you better go out and abuse it within an inch of its life. Because if you take it easy on a show airplane, and if somebody has video of you taking it easy, well, people are just going to assume that it doesn't fly very well. Um, and so when we, when we take these airplanes out to a, a show like Nall, where there's going to, you know, we already know from experience how it's going to go, go down, there's going to be a lot of cameras on them. The team pilots already know that they just have to wring its neck, uh, you know, show everybody that, Hey, this is another good offering from extreme flight. And, you know, we've, we have beat this thing harder than you will ever beat on it. And it, it flies well. And, and, uh, yeah, you know, sometimes that results in some unfortunate things. So, um, a, a pilot, uh, whose name is even super Tim, um, managed to crash the very first 85 inch <laughs> game bird a year ago. The first time it was out in public that hurt. Um, and then, well, now come to, to think of it, it was also oh. a pilot named even super Tim that managed to crash the first 85 inch jacket and all this year. I'm starting I was, to see a pattern here. I, I was going to oh. bring that up. I was like, wasn't even super Tim, the one doing it again this yeah, year. So even <laughs> super Tim crashes occasionally anyway, but I've, I've got both of those airplanes hanging on the wall. I'm looking at them. The uh, game bird has been repaired. And now that, that's the thing, you know, re repairing an, an airplane like that, you, you learn every time, even if you think, Oh, I've got this, it's perfect. It can never be improved upon. And then team pilot stuffs it in the ground and you're like, Oh God, yeah, I miss this and this and this. And then the, uh, the yak for that, uh, that one's being repaired so that we can continue to, we're going to show it off at fall events this year and different things. And a lot of times um, the first one of something that you see in the United States that we're flying is typically it's number two or number three, something like that, because often in, in, in normal years, uh, we would have beat on it in China uh, quite a bit. And now, you know, that's, that's our MO. We, we try to go and beat on stuff um, at the factory. That's when you get a tremendous amount done. And um, when you can take a design, go out and fly it, come back at lunchtime, redo CAD drawings, um, you know, design a new fuse, design a new wing, design a new tail. And then by breakfast the next morning, it's fabbed and covered and ready to go. That's rapid turnaround prototyping. Right. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty good, but, um, I still, I can't fab a complete new giant scale airplane in a day. And that's, that's what you can do in China. 
um, you can, you can fab, you can start out with fresh drawings in the morning. And then the next morning you can be handling the parts of the airplane and then you can do the assembly and that night you can fly it. I mean, it's a 36 hour process for a giant. It's, it's, it's amazing. And, um, so you can, you can get through a lot of, of, uh, versions in a short period of time. And, and if you're trying to figure out things like wing positions, tail positions, testing airfoils and things that is super duper handy. And now the whole COVID mess threw a wrench in that. And we've, we've had to take a couple of years off from having, having that. And that's where we put, so in the meantime, we've put quite a bit of money and effort into the skunk works here in Texas so that we can get some of that get some of that back while we're prevented from traveling to China. Well, I know I'm pretty envious of that laser you've got. Uh, Casey and I have a very much smaller version and uh, we enjoy it, but uh, that one you have is incredible just based on the pictures I've seen. Oh, so. it's, it's a, so I call it the millennium Falcon because it's a big hot rotted turd. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, so I, I can't, I have a terrible problem about not spending enough money on tools the first time around. So I end up modding them and repairing them. So the, the laser that I've got here has got non-stock controls, non-stock tube, non-stock optics. And then the 3d printer that I use is nothing about its stock. And um, the CNC router that we use is scratch build. Now it, it, it was a shape Oko years ago and now it's just a mongrel. And um, the, the laser's working really well. So now that thing is 120 watts on a one meter by 0.8 meter bed. And um, yeah, it, it will eat up some ply. Nice. Uh, yeah. So the, so yeah, that thing. What's we, the, what's the thickest ply that you have cut with the 120 watt? Okay. So um, last year I got deeply into uh, composites and started working on some some composite experiments because you know that's a that's a skill I wanted to have and and uh, it's not it's not bad to have diverse skills in the company so I started doing a bunch of composite research and I I built some uh, some composite aircraft and one of them I was using a Baltic a ten ply Baltic six millimeter um, for landing gear mounts on a fifty pound airplane and I cut the 10 ply Baltic, which six millimeter regular ply is nothing on the 120 rips through it. The, the, the Baltic, the 10 ply Baltic is a special animal. Um, that's, that's extremely difficult to cut. And I think it took 10 passes, oh. 10 passes, <laughs> uh, at, I try not to push these tubes over 60%. Um, so, uh, the, but on that one, I think I was running 75% and 10 passes. And um, anyway, it, it, yeah, because that uh, if still have to move pretty fast to get a clean cut. But that that Baltic is is really different stuff. We don't use that. Uh, we use a similar material for firewalls, but it's not a Baltic product. But the stuff that you get like from aircraft sprues, um, that's the genuine northern European stuff. That's really really difficult to cut ply so that's the toughest thing i've cut so far what i what i normally cut is uh you know obviously balsa but what i normally cut is um composite faced ply usually in two and three millimeter and so that you can cut at 25 percent power and get good cut speed so yeah it's a nice machine yeah i've cut some quarter inch with the 50 watt 
but again, it has to be a particular uh, plywood. Uh, I messed around, tried to cut some, I think it was seven ply. And I actually thought the laser wouldn't do it. This was the first time I tried to cut a quarter inch. And uh, then it, I thought, well, the laser's no good. So I, I replaced the tube, replaced the mirrors, the lens. Still wouldn't cut it. And finally, someone on a Facebook group said, well, certain plies have different resins, different glues, or different layers, and it simply won't cut because of the resin. So I thought, okay, well, I go grab a different kind of quarter inch, and it cuts it fine at uh, 70% power, I think is what I'm running at, uh, when I generally cut a birch um, quarter inch ply. And then like with basswood, I'm down in the 50% range and that's on a 50 watt. So again, that's, I've run into that as well. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. That you get varying results with different, different plywoods and um, the different glues have different, as far as I can tell, have different optical properties. And um, um, one of the things that you may uh, fool with sometime is uh, staining or dyeing things to see if you get different cut performance. That's um, like a lot of the, a lot of the ply, a lot of the, the composite uh, reinforced ply that we use um, is all uh, dyed a dark color. And one of the reasons is it really gets, it really cleans the cut up because you don't get as much diffraction um, oh. of the beam because uh um, if the uh, composite materials are dark now, you know, th this being a CO2 laser, it cuts carbon fiber cloth very, very poorly. Um, but it cuts glass cloth nicely, particularly if that glass cloth is dyed a dark color. Okay. Um, so that uh, it's, it's nice. The dark colored uh, stained and dyed plywood looks really nice. If you looked inside a modern tech aircraft, like one of ours, you know, you can see that, that, uh, the uh, the the carbon I mean the uh, the composite reinforced plywood is is a dark color whether it's carbon or whether it's glass and the uh, glass uh, cuts really nicely on a laser particularly with that dye in the in the matrix so that's most of what I cut here in the in the skunk works is a uh, a dark colored glass faced ply um, and um, yeah, and it, it's it's nice. I can process a lot of that stuff on on a machine this big and do it really quickly, and that helps because I'm I'm one guy, and so uh, you know it it if 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 you don't have some good techniques that speed things up, something like a giant scale build can just drag on and on and on, right? Oh, yeah. And um, you know you don't want things to don't you don't want things <laughs> to drag on and on. You want to get them pushed out of the shop and be efficient, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, okay. but yeah. So that's, that's what I'm, I'm doing lasering here. But, uh, um, uh, the laser that I got was, uh, it was very cheap, but all that's left of it really is the, the case and the, and the tracks. So. I see. Yeah. I actually talked to Terry Wiles, uh, a fair amount about some of this because he's got a fiber laser, a CO2 laser, and of course his CNC machines. And he and I talk about this type of stuff on a regular basis. And he told me that he personally doesn't like to cut that thick of material with the laser that he just goes to the CNC router when he needs to do that. And he kind of keeps it. I think he told me eighth inch or maybe three sixteenths was his upper limit on uh, the laser. 
And that was even with 120 watt fiber. And I thought, huh, no, okay, but this is what I've got. So I'm going to try it anyway. So well, that, that was my philosophy. If I had Lori's CNC router, I would do the same. Because <laughs> yeah. that that's badass. I mean, you know, she she's got an amazing badass router, and that's, um, I, yeah, I would I would agree with that. The uh, yeah, um, with the mostly what I'm doing CNC routing for is if it's if it's a, something thick where the kerf is going to get nasty, or if it's involves carbon fiber at all, then it needs to go to the yeah. um, to to the CNC router. Um, you know, which then, you know, so that I can ruin the environment here in my workshop with carbon dust, because it's just the greatest stuff in the whole world. And no matter <laughs> how awesome your dust collection system is, the carbon, you know, it finds a way. Oh, oh it's yeah. just terrible. It's just, it's just awful. And I've got, I've got custom designed and printed shoes on the dust collection. And I've got this big two and a half horse suction unit and everything. And still the carbon gets, just gets everywhere, which is great for electronics, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Really a lot of too. Yeah. yeah. Oh well, yeah. The, the first time you get a snoot full of carbon dust, it teaches you, and you never make that mistake again. I was going to say you're going to be on one of those uh, commercials here in about 30 years for mesothelioma. With uh, <laughs> did, did you work in the carbon fiber industry? <laughs> you know. Oh my gosh. Well, you know what I you know what I did is for for a long time I I made my living uh, in metal fabrication and auto racing, and I was a TIG welder. And did a lot of TIG welding and, you know, built chassis and things. And so what I got when I was in my, uh, in my late forties is I got early onset cataracts, uh, radiation burn cataracts, um, because I was using the first generation of auto darkening welding helmets, uh, back in the early nineties and, um, they didn't darken quick enough. And, um, you know, at the end of a long day of welding, your eyes would burn and itch and you'd think, oh man, I might, you know, but you're not thinking ahead, you know, to <laughs> 25 years later. And then I got early onset cataracts, but, um, got them, got them removed. Doc did a, did a great job. And when you go get cataract surgery, now they ask you, they say, we can set you up. So you never need reading glasses again. I'm like, no, set it up for flying both eyes for flying. So, <laughs> yeah. so, yep. so I still, I still have to wear reading glasses, but I've got both eyes for flying. So I'm very happy. Well, something that I, I had to teach myself is, and, and everyone in this group has done 3d printing and some, to some extent lasering. So everyone can understand what I'm talking about. Uh, when you first get that new machine, that CNC machine, you just watch it, right? You're like, to me, I'm just fascinated and I just watch it move, right? And I mean, watching something 3D print is about like watching grass grow, but it's fascinating, right? So anyway, I get this laser and I had LASIK surgery about a year and a half ago. And so I get this laser earlier this year and I'm just watching it. And then I look away, which it's got the, the shield and all that stuff, but it's not really dark tinted. Um, but in theory, you're supposed to be able to look through it and, and the CO2 laser doesn't burn your eyes because it's diffracted. You know what I'm talking about, but it's still bright. And so I look away and there's a spot right in the middle of my vision and I'm like, Oh, this can't be good. <laughs> so after that, I'm like, don't watch it let it do its thing and then look later or put some safety glasses on that are tinted, you know, try not to watch it the whole time. But, uh, anyway, so. Yeah. I I'm, I'm going to second that it's, it's just bad practice to stare at your laser head while it's operating because yeah, the odds that something would go wrong and you would get a reflection are very low, but you don't want to be that guy. 
Yep. Right. And so, you know, it just, just, you just don't want to be that guy. And, um, um, I, I try to, I try to, to, to make a practice that, um, just, just glance, just glance and make sure nothing's going wrong. Cause if you got a laser in your shop, you got to be careful because that's like your number one tool, most likely to burn your shop down. And so, you know, if you have a laser in your shop, you're going to keep fire extinguisher, you know, right next to it. And you're going to never leave the room when it's cutting. If you leave the room when your laser is cutting, it will teach you a lesson. That is there. There's a lot of workshops and garages have been burned down uh, by lasers. Now, the problem with damn 3D printers is that's the tool second most likely to burn your shop down. But you can't wait for that slow ass thing. So you have to go to bed at some point. And eventually, someday, that's what's going to happen. Someday, this thing's going to burn down because I had a thermal runaway on a printer or something, and you just you can't wait around for the twenty-five hours it takes for this thing to print. But what um, was that? What, uh, what was it like that? two days ago? We had this conversation, Matt. Let's see, I was I was about to say the exact same thing. It's like we just had this conversation because I had I had a three D printer that screwed up and clogged and then it ended up wrapping filament around motors and locked the <laughs> entire thing up smoked the motherboard and the power supply i mean oh. it was it was bad and it could have been way worse way worse well the way we got on this was i had a laser job that was about an hour and 45 minute cut time and uh I'm like, man, the worst part about it is I have to sit out here and babysit this thing. And, <laughs> and, uh, I was like, it's not like a 3d printer where you can just walk away. And Matt's like, well, you really can't do that either. <laughs> you need to be like, careful. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, it, I have it's cameras. funny. You, you're repeating what exactly what we just talked about the other day. So I put, yeah. I put wireless yeah. cameras up in my shop just for that. So I can check in on them and make sure that things aren't, uh, you know, yep. wrapping up. Yep. I got bad. the webcam. The webcam's pointed at the printer so that at least I'll get to watch while it burns everything down. <laughs> <laughs> it gets saved to the cloud, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's what's going to happen. It, you know, I'll just, I'll get to watch, but oh, yeah. The building a, building a workshop where, you know, you can recreate, well, you know, to do what we're trying to do to fill in when, uh, you know, during the times of the year, we can't get to China when it's not favorable or if, you know, the world ends like it has done a lot lately. Um, you know, trying to put all those processes in one building, that's been I mean, I loved every second of it, but I had to really it was a lot of uh, a lot of steep learning what they call a steep learning curve um, to be able to do all of this as one guy. And uh, the 3D printing um, has been that, that was a godsend. Um, because uh, um, to go quickly, you had to figure out how to go quickly from uh, from concept in 3D CAD to composite parts to, to cowls and canopies and wheel pants and stuff like that. And it's been that a lot of a lot of work has gone into uh, ramping up the cycle time um, on that. And uh, I had some good mentors um, that uh, helped me out with with composites. But you know, I had I had built you know cowls and things before, but I had never thought about doing it really well and i got to give a shout out to bob sawyer um sensei you guys know bob i personally uh, don't but i've heard of him yeah if 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 you've never looked at bob's work uh, bob and, and don hockle uh, built planes together down in san antonio their their neighbors are not quite neighbors but they, they're both down in san antonio and, and bob is one of the great builders of of the modern era of RC and the guy is my building hero. And uh, if, if, if I know something about building, it's pretty much because Bob taught me and um, Bob's built, he was the guy that 
well, 20 years ago now, but he built the uh, 80, the 75 or 80 percent Stoddocker, the 300 cc. 75% or 80% Stoddocker that dominated Flying Giants back when it was new and um, the 80% extra 260. And then he designed the uh, 50% extras that, you know, weighed like 40% that were produced as kits there for a while. And Bob, Bob is the, 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 the master of building light aerobatic aircraft. And um, if you want to learn how to build, you can, one of the best things somebody can do is they can go read his threads on uh, flying giants and his handle is sensei, which is perfect. And uh, Bob is, um, he was trained. He's a NASA trained um, composites technician that did composite fab and repair on X planes at Edwards air force base. Oh, that's interesting. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And then when he, when he quit doing that work for NASA, then he founded a company in San Antonio we're making ultra lightweight certifiable carbon fiber bathrooms for business jet conversions. Like if a Saudi Sheikh wanted to convert a jetliner into his own private ultra luxury business jet, Bob yeah. is the guy that would make the carbon fiber lavatory with bathtub, shower, carbon fiber toilet. Bob was the guy that made carbon fiber toilets. And <laughs> Anyway, it's it's a it's amazing the stuff that he made um, in when he you know he owned that company he founded it owned it designed everything and he was doing multi million dollar bathrooms for aircraft it's just amazing stuff anyway so when I when I wanted to learn how to do a, a proper job with composites that's where I went I went to Bob and um, um, Bob uh, you know I've I've known Bob for a long time because I founded 3D Hobby Shop in the San Antonio Texas area and everybody if you're in the San Antonio area you know Bob Sawyer because Bob Sawyer is the guy you know Don Hockle because Don Hockle is the pilot and you know Bob because Bob's the builder right and so these were the the guys we just absolutely re revered and so when I said well I gotta up my composites game I called Bob and I said can you help me and it was so great because he just like yes he just said yes instantaneously and he started teaching me how to do proper molding and you know proper vacuum bagging and all of these all of these skills and uh it, it he, he taught me so much that last year I, uh, I, I scratch built an all carbon 133 inch, um, Sakata TBM turboprop. And, um, which was, that's the, by, by far my best, my best scratch building, uh, project that I've ever done. And, uh, man, Bob was so good. He walked me through that. And I've also got to give a shout out to Thomas White. If you've never seen, uh, the planes that Thomas White has built, you've got to look him up on Facebook. His uh, handle on Facebook is, uh, Kurt Thomas tank because he's a fuck wolf nut. Mm -hmm. And, um, he does, uh, all composite hybrid carbon glass builds of, uh, super scale fighter jets and world war II aircraft. And, Right now, he's got a build going on Facebook. It's a hundred and some odd pound, 25% scale beach starship. <laughs> oh. You guys know what? 
You guys know oh, what, yeah. a, what a starship is? So the it's pusher. the twin yeah. pusher. Oh, yeah. yeah, twin yep. pusher canard. So he's doing a hybrid wood composite, twenty five percent starship with sweeping canards. It's amazing. So if you've never seen, so that and like, like I said, Thomas was another guy that uh, you know, when I said, "Hey, I, I want to up my composites game. Will you teach me some things?" And this is what's so great. You know, you get with some good guys that are you know they're they're giving of their time, and if you can prove to them that you're serious, right? You have to you have to meet that minimum bar. You have to prove not a dumb ass and you got to prove that you're willing to do the work but once you're just like yes i will listen to you i will do the work then you've got you know amazing talents and knowledge in the hobby and to tap into these guys that have done composite work on these super exotic projects you know literally spaceships and shit and uh, you know so i yeah i i've got to i've got to sit at the feet of some really talented guys and learn some learn some yeah. really neat neat stuff and so now here we are in our little extreme flight skunk works and we're you know bagging carbon over foam and doing some really cool stuff so bob moore is uh one of the guys that i've looked at and i realize bob moore is more into the scale and the warbirds but he does some really amazing scratch builds with a, a lot of fiberglass and vacuum bagging and so on uh i believe he went by b1 bob was his handle mm -hmm. on some of the groups yep. But uh, I've got to meet that guy in Oklahoma City one time, and he's kind of a nut, but he was good people, and uh, <laughs> man, he's done some amazing stuff. So, well, that you know, there, there, there are such talents working in this hobby. It's it's amazing when you find these guys, and they're not, you know, they're not advertising themselves. They're not out there beating their own drum or tooting their own horn. They're just quietly in their workshop doing stuff, which is just amazing aerospace quality work. Um, I'm, I'm constantly overwhelmed. I, you know, you, you go to some event and somebody will bring out a creation and it just, you know, my, my jaw drops. And I, I love that experience of seeing something really jaw dropping like that. And, um, well, I also got something else for you and I'm not sure it's still an option, but I'll find out. Um, I actually got a tour of the F 35 assembly line a few years ago. Ooh, sweet. And one of my favorite parts of that tour was the composites and how they did that. Uh, it was an absolutely clean room. It's a room within the factory that's all glass and it, they have a, it's a negative air pressure room. So you, when you go in there, it's full of suit up Tyvek, but to see the molds and how they go about layering the composites together and the processes that they go through and then to put them into the, the oven. I don't recall what they actually had a name for it, but basically this huge oven that you slide these things into and to see that process and to see the F 35 basically from sheets of composite material to finished product further down the line, that's phenomenal. Um, you know, and something as high tech as that, that to me was amazing. Yeah, it's it's fascinating process. One of the things I need to do, I haven't taken advantage of it yet, is to go and and uh, meet up with Philip Steinbach in Bentonville, Arkansas, and tour the the Game Bird Factory. Yes, uh, because Philip is such a great guy, and he's you know obviously we've done a lot of work with him on our Game Bird models, and um, and so you know we've got a you know I like need i need to take him up on his invitation i need to go look at the at the works up there because it looks just fan, fantastic in the photos he's obviously doing really really cool stuff and i'm i'm so impressed i think they're they're getting they're they're at what serial number 49 or 50 or something now uh, 
Yeah, I don't Something recall like the that. last one I saw, but it yeah, was up, I, that, I, up that area. Yeah, I know. I know. I saw forty-seven, and I think anyway. I, I I should I should know the number offhand, but um, you know, they they're their their production is going smoothly, and um, you know, that's a that's a really cool thing that that's happening just right there in Arkansas. So neat. Well, and, you know where we're at here. It blows my mind that in this little small part of flyover country, we're right next door to where Zivco builds the Edge 540s in Guthrie, Oklahoma. Oh, That's yeah, they're Oklahoma. Right. Yeah, they're 30 minutes from Casey's house. And then, you know, just three, four hours east, you've got Game Bird. You know, so to me, it's just, it's something that you wouldn't really imagine. Anymore. You know, uh, that, that edge, uh, you know, it obviously such a seminal aircraft. We've all had edges. We all like edges and all the edges to do. And, and, uh, it's, it's such an interesting thing. And, uh, um, you know, that, that airplane has been around for a long time and I'm, I'm so intrigued by the way that, that the Red Bull air racing gave that edge a new life, you know, brought it back, so to speak. And, um, you know, we always told people, you know, hey, this edge design is interesting because it uses a net forward swept wing platform and it's, uh, you know, very, very resistant to a one wing stall or, you know, a tip stall and it's very stable. And um, then when they started Red Bull Air Racing, that that airplane, um, it obviously did very well. And then, uh, you know, they they tried to incorporate non edge aircraft into red bull air racing they tried to bring the mxs in there you guys remember that when they started trying to use the mxs mm-hmm. the and then and then the corvus racer and- yeah and then the mxs has started uh snapping out of turns and you know a couple of them went in the bay and uh, that was such an amazing object lesson in what that edge plan form is good at because you had these pilots and they were loading these aircraft high positive g's around these pylons right and they had, you know, they had a technique they had developed where they were, you know, obviously very, very high skilled dancing on those rudder pedals, keeping that aircraft, you know, in, in on exactly the, uh, the altitude they wanted around that pylon. Right. And the edge just took it right. The edge would take it, they'd take it. And then when they started putting the, uh, the MXS in there with, you know, the, the net zero sweep wing plan form, then you had these outlier events where, you know, loading the aircraft super high positive G's around the pylons and then a little bit of, uh, you know, down rudder, right, to keep the nose down, and the aircraft snaps under. And, boy, that was such an interesting time to, to live through being interested in aircraft design to see that that object, real-world, real-life lesson in what that edge wing plan form is really, really good at, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the because the edges just have that little bit of it of advantage because of the net forward sweat wing plan form. Anyway, that's... I like geeky stuff like that. That's what makes me happy. It's geeky airplane design yeah. stuff. Yeah. Uh, Jason, did you say that uh, they're no longer building them? Uh, yeah, Zivco doesn't actually build them anymore. Who's building but, them now? Uh, I'm not sure. Zivco co- is concentrating on uh, unmanned aircraft at the moment. Yeah. I was thinking, um, I actually went to the Zivco office one time about 10 years ago in an attempt to go see uh, an edge being built. Uh, it was right when I first come to Oklahoma and uh, they told me, well, we can't let you back there. It's all top secret stuff. And we don't have any here anyway. Uh, I know they've built one since then because Matt Hall from the Red Bull series had one built. Um, 
with that being said, I don't know if it's maybe they're built to order now where rather than in which Philip may have all his sold before he builds them too. I don't know, but uh, I don't think they have just an, a, a production line set up. I, I, I was kind of under the impression that if you want one and you're going to spend the money, then maybe you can contract them to build you one, but there's not like a, dealership where you just you know they're going to get new ones all the time right you know just in in general in general that company and the way it does business it's 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 very it's with with like extra extra just splashes everything that they do on all social media and you know obviously philip is great at social media there's always new photographs try to find information about what zivco is doing on the web it's just not there it's not it's just not there (laughs) and uh, you know one of the one of the things that uh one of the things that i do for the for the company is i put together the newsletters which yeah we don't do as regularly as we should but um we're we we get we get a few out every year and um I try to do, I try to do some uh, some features on full scale aerobatic information because I like to keep RC. I like to keep it connected to what's going on in the full scale world. I feel like it enhances the hobby if people know a little bit about the full scale designs these are based on and the real people who developed them. So I like to do that. So in one of our recent newsletters, I don't know if it was the one we did this spring or if it was last winter, but I did a big write up on Leo Ludenschlager, for instance, and the laser, how the laser came about. Can you things pronounce like that it again? Cause I've been pronouncing it way wrong. <laughs> oh, I think it's, it's Ludenschlager, but um, okay. it could have more of a schlushle in there. I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I but, thought it was uh, like La- Loudenschlager or something. Oh yeah. That <laughs> was way all, off. <laughs> it, all of these things, all of these things are possible. Um, but uh, anyway, genius, you know, genius aircraft developer. Um, and so, you know, we did that and I would, I would love to do uh do a, a, a write-up on uh, on Zivco and the edge design, but you just, you know, it would it's so difficult to do that. You're pretty much going to have to meet somebody who knows the inside story because it just doesn't exist out there. You could you could write pages and pages about Jim Beatty or, you know, Bert Rutan or somebody, but try to try to write something about Zivco. It's very difficult. It's the information's yeah. kind of shadowy, but man, what a Maybe you need to get a hurt of a you just need to get a hold of Kirby Chambliss. He probably knows more than anyone. I would. Well, say. that would be the thing to do. Although then I would just want to do a story on Kirby. It's Kirby, yeah. so that would be <laughs> equally good to do. But yeah. um, man, you know, I I I, I want to sing the praises of that design, that genius design of the edge. That plan form is so magic. I just love it. Yeah. That's so a, we actually know. we actually know an engineer at uh, Zipco. Yep. He's a friend of the podcast here. Yep, Dan Byerly. Correct. Well, that is, that is very cool. It, you know, have you guys, you guys have, have you grilled him on the podcast for. Uh, if I recall, in- he was a little bit like, yeah, I can't talk about much. Yeah. If I recall. <laughs> yeah. That. yeah. Uh, that's, that's very cool. There have to be some secrets in aviation, but um, you know, it, these, these iconic designs that we all know and, and love, you know, the, the extra 300 and all these things. I love the fact that there's real human drama, you know, in in the way that these aircraft were developed and and where they came from and what they did so i'm a, i'm a geek for this for that i like the history of it very very much and um well and leo you mentioned him uh and i'll be honest i'm not really up on the leo history a ton but uh last december uh, matt and i bought new airplanes 
and I bought the 104 inch Leo schemed laser. And, uh, whenever I got it, uh, I talked to Casey, he does graphics work a lot. And anyway, I said, I want to do the traditional Leo scheme relatively close. And, uh, anyway, so I got to doing some reading and I went and found some pictures of his airplane in the Smithsonian. And I didn't know until then that he started out with the home built that was considerably different than the mm -hmm. end product. And he just developed it over time and continually improved and changed on it. And from what I gathered, he was kind of one of the early guys to really push that envelope, so to speak. Um, you know, and, and again, I'm not up on the history extremely well, but you know, he was in the days of uh, Kermit weeks maybe. And Kermit weeks has done some really incredible things out there throughout the years. And I, I found it interesting and I need to, to dive into that history of aerobatics a little bit more myself. Yeah. Leo was a, you know, he was a guy that would work and work and work on the aircraft. And I totally respect that. That's how I try to, to live as well, to not, you know, to, to try to improve things. Um, and you know, he would not leave any part of the aircraft alone. And he was a fanatic about weight. And the story that we did on him in the newsletter, um, which you can, you can just Google and you can find extreme flight airmail newsletter. If you want to want to read it, um, is, uh, there was a great quote from, uh, Wayne Handley. You might remember him. He's oh, yeah. the guy that built the, uh, particularly the he's the famous Raven. for the, for the, yeah, Raven and the turbo Raven. Um, and, Wayne said that they traded airplanes at one point at a competition. He got to fly Leo's laser and he, Wayne said something. I'm, I'm going to just paraphrase it. He said, flying that airplane made me understand how important weight reduction was. Um, he said, because it was so much lighter than my airplane. It flew so much better. And so that was Leo's deal. You know, Leo would, he would hand grind and machine engine cases to try to get weight, and just, just fanatic, fanatic, fanatic about weight. And uh, you, you got to respect a guy like that, that, you know, combination of hard work, intelligence, uh, you know, really, really rational thinking about it. And he, you know, pushes his whole industry forward. Well, big props to him. Well, and, I'm going um, to plug a video of Wayne Handley out there uh, on the web that I found. And it's uh, it's related to full scale aviation. It's talking. It's a video directed towards ag pilots. But if you will watch the video and take what he's saying, it applies in RC a hundred percent. And the video is by Wayne Hanley, and it's called Turn Smart. And he's talking about uh, basically slips and skids in uh, ag planes, and how that can be very a very dangerous practice. And if you, you know, I'm not sure where you grew up, but where I grew up at, there's ag planes everywhere. And when I was a kid, it was not uncommon to hear about ag planes crashing. And I, th I think it's still kind of that way today. But he goes into, if you're making a turn and you're holding top rudder and the plane stalls, which way is it going to go? And it, it really gets you to thinking. And I've used that in flying RC planes much to my advantage and understanding that behavior of what the plane should do when you put it into an abnormal condition. And uh, I'm, I'm going to agree with you a thousand percent. Um, 
if 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 a person who's trying to fly RC and they want to they want to become a a a good pilot that's on top of what their airplane's doing and they want to be able to anticipate and they don't want to be surprised by things if they can think about the airflow over their airplane if they can if they can spend a little thought time trying to visualize it and if they can visualize the airflow turning and not you know, airflow doesn't always flow perfectly cordwise over the wing. It doesn't flow straight from the front to the back of the wing, particularly when you have rudder in the airplane. Then the airflow turns. It turns along the wing. And if if they can start thinking about the airflow um, moving along the wing in uh, not just orthogonally, and if they think of their rudder as a tool to apply beta angle that makes the air flow over the wing spanwise it'll turn spanwise and then they start to think about where does the air go once you've got the airflow it's no longer just flowing from leading edge to trailing edge where does it go does it pile up against the fuselage does it flow off the end of the tip does it not flow off the end of the tip because you have an sfg there and it piles up against the sfg Um, getting people to think about the airplane as really moving through um, the air mass um, you know, in three dimensions, that that is, uh, I'm I'm a big fan of people starting to visualize airflow over their airplane. Well, um, one can, that needs to be remembered is that while air is a a gas, it has fluid behaviors or fluid dynamics, so to speak. And so, if you think of it as a fluid, and how you can visualize a boat traveling through water but you don't visualize that with an airplane because you can't see it. Um, Obviously smoke helps that a lot, but if you can imagine how it has wake and how, you know, the air is fluid in its motion around objects, that really helps a lot too. And it has, and it has inertia and it, when you've turned it a direction, it will flow that way until something forces it to go the other direction. Um, you know, you don't have to get into super complex um, things that are, well, no one in the model aircraft industry um, understands the aerodynamics around their own device to a very high level because nobody in the model airplane industry um, can spend any money on tunnel time. And because CFD is a great tool, but it works really, really poorly on small uh, surfaces moving at slow speeds. And um, is that computer fluid design? Uh, yeah, computational fluid, computational fluid dynamics work, and um, okay. that it's um, computational fluid dynamics. Now it's gotten cheap. Now you can get low to medium quality plugins, even for a lot of commonly available CAD software. And if you can't, if you don't have a good system, you can, you can get somebody for little or no money to run your models um, through a a CFD run in various ways, but um, they're, they're not great um, for, because uh, without getting into the complexities of Reynolds numbers and what's that, what that means, you can explain it very simply by saying that air tends to act as a more perfect fluid, the more air you're talking about and the faster you're going. And computational fluid dynamics uh, works very well on large surfaces traveling at high speeds, and then it works less and less well, less and less accurately okay. as the surfaces get smaller and your speeds get slower. You're and, making sense uh, to me because I'm thinking, and Casey, if you'll chime in here, we watch a lot of Mike Patey videos, and 
Mike Patey, I think uses SolidWorks to do a lot of his uh, design work. And he has a lot of flow analysis and things like that. If you watch his videos enough, you know that he basically knows what that's going to do before he ever makes it. And yeah, that Mike, Mike teaches a good practical workshop level use of CFD plugins that are available for, for SolidWorks. It's, it's really, you know, Mike's got a fascinating channel. He's tremendous fun to watch. And also just, you know, anybody who's got that much energy, you know, is really, really fun to watch. I haven't um, figured out his secret yet. There's well, something yeah, else know. going on there. Well, you know, there's, there's <laughs> two of them, right? You know, they're, they're twins. That's the basic secret. You never know which one you're watching. <laughs> so anyway, Casey and but, I met the, the other one. <laughs> so Mark, Mark Patey. Yeah. yeah we, I have, we saw Mark. Uh, unfortunately he wiped out on a one wheel, so we didn't get to hang out with him a whole oh. lot. But yeah. The, the, that's better than wiping out one. the most popular airplane in the world, I guess. But. Well, the, <laughs> Oh, too uh, soon. Right. Oh. <laughs> oh boy. Oh, that was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> now the uh when uh mark Payne draco more like draco <laughs> uh, I, I i felt so but you know i i gotta say the way that mike stood up to the camera and explained what he had done wrong in the moments absolutely. after that crash was the most baller move i have seen in aviation maybe ever yeah, yeah. yeah that was that he was amazing oh my gosh that was that was owning up you know times a hundred he literally Climbed out of the wreck, got his passengers out of the wreck and, you know, made sure that people knew, you know, what needed to be carted away. And then he turned to the camera, you know, and knowing he had a responsibility to all of his fans. And he said, well, I screwed up and here's how I screwed up. I was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. So but, um, uh, Casey and I got to go to that very same airport and take off in the uh, median, basically, between the taxiway and the runway and some uh, Super Cubs and Carbon Cubs. I think Casey, oh, you were in a, were you in a Coulter Super Cub? I can't remember. And then I, I was in a, a Piper. Cub. Yeah. Was it a, is it a Pacer? No. Maybe in a Pacer. What yeah. was that thing? I yeah, think you're right. I think it's a Pacer. Yep. I think it's Piper Pacer. Yeah. And uh, so that's, we went out to uh, Dead Cow to the High Sierra Fly-In uh, last year. And uh, anyway, we got uh, in the full treatment. Uh, showed up out there at Reno Stead hopped in some bush planes and, and took off in the, and they don't have grass, you know, it's just like a rocky median. And uh, these guys just turn off the taxiway and line up side by side, just shoulder abreast. And here we go, you know? Oh, that's and awesome. So I've been to Reno state. Thank you, Rod. On the airport. <laughs> so oh, that's I've never fantastic. been on the runway. I'm envious. Ooh, I'm, yeah. I'm envious now. And uh, oh. so we, we go out to dead cow and uh, like trip Palmer. And uh, Mark Patey and like all these guys are out there, Kyle Bushman, like all these phenomenally cool guys. And but yeah, well, everybody's zipping around on these one wheels, right? I never seen so many one wheels in my life. And then later on, we hear that Mark Patey had wiped out on one and and broke his hip. And I was like, man, that sucks. So. Yeah, I I've never been on a one wheel um, Don't. because because <laughs> I because I took physics in high school. <laughs> right. Uh, how far did I make it, Casey? Like twelve inches before I hit the ground? Uh, I mean, I think you're giving yourself six inches, like everything else in life. But yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, to to complete the thought before let's see, complete the thought. We're talking about airflow and visualizing air as a fluid, and the 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 point being that in the in the model airplane industry, 
um, you, you have to operate pretty much from empirics. You have to build something and you have to test it in the real world because there's a limited amount of analysis you can do. Cause like I was talking to, uh, to Cody about a point on one of the designs he's working on and he's, he was working on stab airfoils and he was doing stab airfoil analysis. And we were talking about how, well, you know, there's an effect. We know there's an effect. There's no way to model it. The only way to do the test is just to sit down and waste a whole weekend and build half a dozen stabs. Right. And that's, that's what you have to do at this point in time, the level of technology we have in this industry is if you want to know what the effects are of these different shapes, Usually you just have to build them in the scale that you propose to produce them in and test them back to back. And that's what a lot of what we're doing. And that's what I was talking earlier about being at, being at, at the factory, being in that environment is so helpful because, you know, if you're going to do something like, you know, half a dozen stabs, then it's really great to have 50 of your closest friends helping you put them together. Oh yeah. That'd yeah. And I'm pretty cool. sure they can iron on covering much faster than I can. So, it's still, I just, they, they're faster than me. They're better than me. It's just, you know, and I, I, I have spent, I have spent many very happy hours in the factory environment, um, you know, and just being open to being taught. Cause you know, here you say, Oh, I'm a modeler. I'm a scratch builder. Right. No, shoot. You, you've got to, you've got to be humble and you've got to be open because this, you may have been building airplanes for 25 years, but I guarantee you this person who covers airplanes professionally has covered 50 or a hundred times more airplanes than I have, or you have, or anybody has. And that kind of repetition builds skills that there's no other way to build it. And you can learn so many things from anyone that has mastered a craft through a lot of, a lot of repetition. And uh, that's, what's so magical about just like kind of philosophically in general, what's so magical about a dedicated factory that does anything, anything is there are going to be people inside that factory that are going to be, you know, world-class at something that maybe, you know, you could, could say, Oh, I've been doing this for 20 years and you'll never approach it because they are so much more intense about it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's and, their and, livelihood. Yeah. And everybody brings up covering because covering is the thing that really consternates people because it's such an unnatural skill. And, you know, I mean, I, everybody hates covering. Everybody hates it because it's, it's so strange and it doesn't really have a lot of, there's not a cognate to other things in your life. You're like, Oh, this is a weird thing. I got to try to learn to master it. But every skill associated with the assembly of a model airplane in a factory environment, a good factory, and we have a good factory environment, they're going to be people that are just world-class at it. And one of the things that, that I've spent as much time just trying to soak in technique is sanding. You think, well, that's, that's simple. No, <laughs> sanding, <laughs> right. sanding is not simple because, you know, when I, okay. So, so one of the things that I strive when I do a scratch build, there's a prototype something we're going to do um i'm striving to you know my turnaround time quicker i'm striving to make things more accurate i'm striving to have better composites you know something closer and closer production level but one of the things that i have to work on and really focus is sanding and to you know to make sure that i have you know, all 25 different sanding tools and you pick up the right one and use it because i still have to use a little filler here a little filler there right Yep. And you do, and then at the factory, the the rule at the factory is no filler. Well, no weight. Filler right. equals weight. Yeah. F filler. Filler yeah. equals filler weight. Costs money, 
Filler costs money. Filler is a discontinuity in the surface that can cause a covering bubble. Filler can come loose. And of course, when you're stressing an airframe, when you're stressing this semi-monocoque structure that the outer skin is a flexible plastic, filler does not, filler's not happy long-term in an environment like that. So one of the things that I push for every time I do, I do a scratch build is I push for less and less and less filler. But like I said, that's a, that's a skill that just comes from time and experience. And so I have, I have spent many hours just at the feet of people that have sanded thousands more airplanes than I ever will picking up tips, picking up tips. And that's something that doesn't require a common language. As long as you're patient and you'll watch and you know, it's, it's, it's a visual learning. Yeah. Yeah, it it is. And, um, and also, you know, it's just, if you like model airplanes, um, it is the biggest model airplane geek out experience in the whole world to spend time in a dedicated model aircraft factory. That's just, you know, Nirvana. Right. And yeah. so I, 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 I dearly love every week that I get to spend in the factory environment in China. I dearly, Chris does too. And we've been, we've been, since we, you know, travel has been impossible during this whole world ending from COVID deal and so it's been very limited and it's been a while since we've been in china at the factory both of us really miss it um and so uh, we're we can't wait we can't wait till the next opportunity comes up because yeah first of all we miss the environment um being total model airplane geese and the other thing which i think kind of surprises people when we explain this is those are some of our best friends in the whole world and it's you know we miss them um, the, the, uh, guys, uh, that we work with at the factory, like, you know, I spend my time with the engineering and drafting staff and, uh, you know, that's, we've been, we've been talking about the guys that we like and respect in the United States because they do, you know, great drawing and great building and the great concept and everything. You know, we, there are also people, you know, exactly halfway around the world that have identical skill sets and are just as enthusiastic. And it's very, very cool. So that was going to be my next question is when you create a design in fusion here in the United States and you go in your laboratory and you create a concept and you go out and you test it and say, okay, this is something we want to do. And we want to send this to uh, factory prototyping. Do you have engineers over there that completely look at it and say, well, you messed up here and here and here, this is what we're going to do to fix that. Oh yeah, it, you have to have people that'll that'll look over your designs for mistakes. But it it's a the process is um, always going to be highly interpretive because um, they've got through years and years of focused experience, um, they've got tabbing systems and they've got um, uh, layout um, systems. Uh, nesting is the term for how you lay parts out to be cut where they'll divide parts up in a different way. Things that if you're, if you're working, you know, if you've got a stack of plywood and you're by yourself in a shop with a laser in the United States, you would never think of that in the same way. So you're talking one about of the laying things, the parts out, so you get the most out of a sheet of materials, what you're talking about, right? A, exactly. So if you've got a three ply part, how are you going to divide these plies up so that, you know, you've got the, 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 so that you get a good part and you also get good use of the material, things like that, it would be very unproductive for me or someone like me to tell somebody, this is how I want you to do this job. If they've got such a lot of experience doing it. One of the things that uh, is an interesting experience to see 
is when you have a new design and the first of something is being built, one of the things you have to get through is you have to get through this extended bitch session where the new drawings go down to the cutting room. And from the cutting room, you have the first set of parts. This is a really exciting moment. Chris and I just totally geek out on this, as you can imagine. <laughs> and you've got the first set of parts and it comes up to the build tables where we're all standing around. And then the first thing you have to do is everything has to be tabbed together because these modern tab and slot designs go together and you can get the airplane and it'll, it'll sit on the bench with no glue. Most of, most of the joints will sit on the bench with no glue and you can get a good look at them because it tabs together so tightly. And that's the first step. The first set of parts that come off the laser then after they're all tabbed together, then you have a bitch list and it has to go back to, to design. And then all of the, the tabs, if a tab didn't fit, if a tab was too loose, if something was off by a millimeter, then everything gets fixed, right? Well, whatever design, if I've come up with a design or Cody's come up with a design, um, it gets chewed up in that process, right? And so one of the things that is really good for the efficiency of the company is for the people that are doing design work, if they're in the United States, is to learn what level the design should be. And what I normally do, and it's the same thing Cody does, is um, you present all the data. And so like we'll present a solid model, an exterior solid model, an accurate exterior solid. And then what I do is I also present my cut files, but the cut files are, you know, that's an, an addendum to the exterior solid model. The, the important thing is to hit the exterior solid model to a high degree of accuracy at weight, at strength, right? And so we know some of the things, you know, are going to be really, really close. You know, we know, we know what our wing spar system is. So everybody in the company knows what our wing spar system is. But when it comes to exactly how to tab things together, I, it, would be, it would be a waste of effort and it would be a wrongheaded way for me to beat my fist on a table and say, no, tab it this way, if an alternate tabbing method is, you know, proven. Right. Mm -hmm. It's part part of the, the the proven set of technology. So all of these designs get they, they get chewed up a little bit. But um, the uh, the main thing is at the end of the process, when you when you've got prototype number two or number three and it's starting to look like something that it it meets weight, it meets strength. Right. And everything's working and it's uh, going together in the jigs really smoothly. And then at that point in time, you know, everybody's happy. <laughs> so um, does, that, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. To me. And then um, what's an, another thing that, you know, one of the things that I, I try not to have pet peeves because, you know, life's too short, but I think it's interesting. It's interesting that um, I, I think that technology has moved forward so quickly in the aerobatic ARF market that I think, most modelers, even a lot of guys that have done a lot of building, I don't think that uh, a lot of people know um, how much the processes have moved on. That, you know, but good quality ARFs today are built with heat and pressure processes. Um, they're not built on a board and they're not just built in jigs. They're built in heated jigs under pressure. Um, and that's a that's an interesting thing, and it's it's a it's a real hurdle. It's one of the things that uh, may it's, it's it's one of the, li the limitations on prototyping in North America. So back up just a little bit. What do you yeah. mean by heated? Yep. Yeah, so what, what um, parts of it is heated? For for instance, a modern Balsa ARF high performance wing, like a thirty five percent competition aircraft, like one of our lasers or extra NGs or slick something. That 
that part, that wing panel is built. Um, so it's, it's got a balsa skin and it's got a carbon ply and glass core. And when it's assembled, it's assembled in a jig and the jig goes into a pressurized, uh, a heated pressurized oven and press process. And so the, uh, the wing is cured. All the pieces are cured together under several hundred pounds of pressure. And there's a uh, mating jig system that mates up with every rib and every spar and every cap in the wing so that pressure is applied specifically to every glue joint um, through the sheeting from the outside. And all of that jigging process is resistively heated so that the, um, the, all of the uh, balsa sheet surfaces are conformed perfectly and the glue is cured at its optimal temperature. Okay. And I, I want to kind of pause you there. And the reason I bring this up and the reason I'm, I'm really excited that you just told us this. Um, I see a lot of times guys that complain about the lack of kits on the market today. And I've heard multiple times, why don't these ARF companies just sell the kit? Like basically laser cut all the parts that it takes to build whatever airplane. Yeah. Oh and my then, gosh. And I can't just, wait. I can't and wait to just ship those, ship those parts <laughs> to us and let us wait. put it together. I can't wait. And Don Hockle was actually the first one to really tell me, at least he's like, it won't work. No, he's like, these planes are not built to be kits. They're built to be arfs. So if you don't have these fixtures and these jigs to build them, you really can't build them. And uh, in any way with you explaining this heating process that explains it. And I've heard this argument countless times, you know, well, we want to build kits, just sell us the parts and we'll put it together. Yeah. That's that, that so first of all, I, I love it because I love anytime somebody says, I want to build a model airplane. Can't get mad about that. Come on. That's, that's freaking cool. If somebody right. actually wants to do it. Okay. So I, I got to give total respect for the guys that are just chomping at the bit and they say, I want to build it. I get it. I get it. But you really have to go back in time about 15 or 20 years in technology to be able to build. And it's going to be a different looking and different. Well, so everybody has either built or they've seen built or they're aware of the processes for building cardinals, right? Or Dalton yes. aircraft or any of these, um, and I'm uh, any of that kind of aircraft, the uh, stick built sheeted giant scale aircraft. And, you know, that's a process that works really well in the home shop. And it's absolutely a non-starter for doing mass production, probably for obvious reasons. And it's also not conducive to the improvement in strength that we've gotten through the laser cut tabbed parts with all the carbon reinforcement. But um, to, to try to assemble something like if you had a kit of parts for one of our 104 inch extra NG aircraft, right? If you had a kit of parts for it, you're not going to be able to put together an aircraft that's going to be nearly as strong as what we get out of the factory environment because of all the additional processes. The second thing is, it's not designed to be built on a workbench. It's designed to be built in specialized jig tooling. That's it, it drops into the jig. The fuselage drops into the jig and it makes sense, right? 
And if you had a tremendous amount of time and you had a giant tooling plate workbench that you had clamps and magnets and stuff, you could set up a one-off of it if you had enough time to do it. But by that time, if a customer actually had something like that, they would have spent so many hours on the phone with us, we would have all died and gone out of business. So it's not possible. The only way, one of the things that I think goes on in, in the, in the hobby, this is going to be a strange statement. I'm going to back it up. I don't think people give themselves enough credit. The guys that are hobbyists in the industry that build and fly model airplanes, I don't think they give themselves enough credit. I think that because the public says, oh, you fly toy airplanes, I think people kind of internalize that and they get kind of embarrassed. They say, well, I fly toy airplanes. But if you think about it, the, the aircraft that we're operating are so outer limits, nuts, high performance things that if you, if you wanted to talk about it and like make a, uh, an analogy to the automotive world, you know, we are not operating economy cars. We're operating Indy cars. We're operating Formula One cars. That's what we're doing. That's what the equivalent of these machines that we're operating. And you have to expect if something is that high performance, it's going to be built in a very exacting way, right? And yeah. that's going to require the care and maintenance and know-how to be able to operate and maintain that as well. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. And, and if, if a person is building and flying high performance RC aircraft, again, they need to give themselves a pat on the back. They need to give themselves credit because not only are they making a machine fly, you know, which is crazy and impossible, but they're also responsible for the care and feeding of this nutso outer limits, super strong, super lightweight, super powerful, super maneuverable thing, you know, which, which not one person in a hundred thousand could even you know tr could operate this is a this is a very rarefied business and i think that uh, i think if people gave themselves more credit for what an extreme hobby what an extreme sport this really is i think maybe they would they would i think maybe they first of all enjoy it more and then secondly i think they'd have a maybe start out with a better idea of what they're getting into um, because you know having something like a modern tech 35 percent freestyle aerobatic aircraft you know that first of all, con congratulations that you've got the balls to even consider doing something like that, because this is, you know, there's not many people in your life that are going to have a hobby or a sport this intense. <laughs> so well, it, it takes a lot of dedication. You know, you take anyone that flies, uh, I'll put it this way. When I first started flying model airplanes, I wasn't very good. Just like most people, you don't, this, you don't start out great at model airplanes. And I was at the hobby shop and this guy, it was a predominantly car shop. And while RC cars are cool, they had their place or whatever. They just never really tripped my trigger. And uh, I told the guy, I said, here's the thing that separates cars from planes. I said, anybody can drive a RC car. It takes someone really talented to drive it well, but anyone can do it. I said, you have to be pretty talented to not crash a model airplane. And he didn't really like that. He was a car guy. He's like, well, you know, like, you know, let's take it out on the track and this, and that. And I was like, you're not understanding what I'm saying. <laughs> I was like, just to not crash takes a lot of dedication and skill. So yeah, that's my and, soapbox. Well, I saw, I saw a question on the internet today and it was a perfectly typical question. And I, I really liked the question. 
Um, and the guy got some good answers. And he said, he said, I want to learn how to Harrier, which is a real common question. I want to learn how to Harrier. He said, I'm trying to Harrier my airplane. Tune in next week to hear the conclusion of the interview with Ben Fisher. Thanks, you guys, for tuning in. We'll see you next week. <laughs>